Good morning. It really is a joy. It really is a privilege to be here, able to stand and and share God's word with you this morning. This morning, we're continuing in a series called Tough Questions. And what what we're seeking to do as a church is try to address some of the issues, some of the questions that people often use as reasons for not coming to church, for not believing Christianity. And the question that we come to this week is, why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Obviously, when Pastor Brad set the title of this sermon, he thinks there are hypocrites in the church. Um, If you do a Google search of those two words, hypocrites and, and church, or hypocrites and Christian, you'll get a few articles. There's a few out there. And uh, I think culture would agree that it seems like there are hypocrites in the church. And unfortunately, I would say that my experience would agree with that as well. Uh, I think, you know, to our shame, we've come to a point where it's fair to say that there are hypocrites amongst us in the church. But before we go any further, I would like to just kind of lay out some groundwork some definitions. Let's kind of make sure we're all thinking the same thing as we go through this sermon. So the first thing in your outline there is the definition of hypocrite. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. A person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. And so in general, you say something, but you do something else, Okay. That is being a hypocrite. The word actually comes from a Greek word, which means actor, literally, like somebody who would have stood on a stage and played a part. And so they're being somebody who's playing a part or being something they're not. All right? The second definition you have there in your outline is for the word Christian. This is my definition. Christian is someone who has been saved by God's redeeming grace. Their life is characterized by a continual submission to Christ, and their actions and words reflect the fact that Christ is the Lord of their life. I chose those words intentionally. As you go back, read that again later on. Um, A person is someone who has been saved by grace. Amen. But there is also this part of it that it should be shown in our lives as well. Uh, The two of them should go together. And I think that's important for what we're talking about today. The third definition, so put those together. What is a hypocrite in the church? A person who says that Jesus is Lord of their life, but the things that truly characterize them are not the things that characterize Christ. So a a hypocrite in the church would be a person who says they love Jesus, but they go out from here and their life doesn't necessarily show that. Okay, And I think this is an important it's important as we go on. This could be a believer or not. Okay? A believer can live hypocritically, and that's what we're talking about today. And so before I try to answer the question, I want to put some ideas out there so that we're all on the same page. The first idea is this. If we all look at our lives with a fine-tooth comb, I think the honest truth is that we all live hypocritically at times. Yes? We say we love Jesus, but we still sin. And in those moments, we're living as hypocrites. That's the reality. Even the most righteous person alive 
has a sin nature that we still struggle against. But as I talk about hypocrisy this morning, that's not what I have in mind, okay? When we talk about hypocrisy this morning, what I want you to think about is the big picture. Think about character, okay? It's not just the moment by moment, but as you add those moments of your life up, what does the character of your life look like? For example, if I asked your neighbor, the person who lives next door, tell me about Joe, what would they say? Or if I ask your family, tell me about Steve, what would they tell me? What words would they use to describe your character? So as we think about hypocrisy, I want us to be thinking at that type of high-level perspective, my character The second idea that I want to lay out is that hypocrite is not a bad word. Saying somebody is a hypocrite is not like saying they're a murderer. Okay? It's just somebody says something and does something different. That's hypocrisy. The reason I'm putting this out there is it's easy to kind of point at the low-hanging fruit when it comes to hypocrisy. The person who says they love Jesus here and then they go out and they live a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, that's easy to point out. But when you submit your life to Christ, that comes with marching orders. That comes with instructions. And if we say we're believers and we're not following those instructions, we're living hypocritically. And I just want us to be in a place where we can see that in ourselves and recognize that because if that is where you find yourself this morning, I don't want you to despair or, or, or be disheartened. This could be the beginning. This could be the first step down a new path as we recognize hypocrisy in ourselves. If you come to a realization like that, that's a good thing. Thank you, Lord. The third idea, Christians should be characterized by love. As we go through these things this morning, I want that to be on the forefront of your mind. We can have all the grace and all the truth and all the knowledge in the world, but if it's not put to use in a loving manner, then we're falling short of the biblical standard for Christian action. Okay? Believers who consistently conduct themselves in an unloving manner are living hypocritically. And the fourth thing is, as I look out and I see faces that I recognize, I see faces of believers who I know and who I count it a privilege to call friend and to serve alongside. And so please hear my heart when I say, I'm not standing up here feeling like you're all hypocrites. Um, Surely in a group this size there are some among us, but... I stand here as a brother and as a co-laborer in this Christian life and my hope, the burden that I bring to you this morning is that um, I can encourage you in this walk and if there is an area that you need to change, that the Lord would show that to you this morning. Okay? We good? We ready to go? All right. Let's try to answer this question. Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? I've come up with this list that's in your outline. It's not exhaustive. It's not scriptural. 
Uh, it's just kind of my own thoughts on this topic. But the goal of the list that's in your outline is to try to point out what hypocrisy might look like beyond the low-hanging fruit. Okay? What might hypocrisy look like from a believer in the church? So in your outline it says, four types of hypocrites in the church and two friends. Let's start with our friends. Friend number one, I called the seeker. The seeker is in the church to see what Jesus has to offer. Okay, this person is not a believer, but they're here and they're interested. Maybe they want to learn. They want to see what church is about. But as I've encountered more and more of these people over the years, I find a theme that they feel hesitant, the seeker does. And I've heard this multiple times. They say something like, I don't want to come to church because I feel like a hypocrite. This morning, if that is you and you fit this category, you're here checking things out, I would say, please keep coming. Please keep coming. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. Maybe you were burned by the church in the past. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's the case. But you're here now, and I'm glad you are. This morning, I would like to tell the seeker that your sincere search does not make you a hypocrite. Keep coming. Keep learning who Jesus is. People don't always live up to the name Christian, but Jesus is always faithful and true. Keep coming. The second friend on our list I called the struggler. The struggler fights sin in their life, but that battle can be very intense at times. This person is a believer, but sometimes it might just feel like you're just barely staying afloat. You truly want to honor the Lord with your life. You're active in the church. You're active in your community group. But maybe there's that one thing that you just can't seem to get over. You know it's wrong. And when you see it coming, you hear the voice in your head. And the voice just tells you, you're a hypocrite. You don't love Jesus. You keep sinning. You're a hypocrite. If you're here and you're struggling, hear me say this. That condemnation is a lie. That condemnation does not come from Christ. Believer, struggling does not make you a hypocrite. It makes you human. We all still have this sin nature that we're fighting against. The difference is the believer hates the sin. The believer doesn't want to give in to that sin. And so they fight. But it's hard. Romans 7 comes to mind. We see Paul struggling, the inner man versus the outer man. That's a real thing. My encouragement to the struggler this morning would be this. There is a day coming when the power of the gospel will take away all of your struggles and your doubts. 
Until that day, keep coming, keep searching, and keep fighting. The next on your list is the beginning of these types of hypocrites that I want to talk about. The first I called the faker. The faker is a person who calls themselves a Christian, but there's no evidence of that in how they live. This person is not a believer. They come to church, but it's not sincere. Maybe they come to please their parents. Maybe they come because they like the social aspect. Maybe grace is just that kind of a party place. Every time they're here, there's a party. They like that. But at the end of the day, the faker has no genuine interest in the things of Christ. But you go around saying you're a part of this church. And when you're out there saying you're a part of this church, you turn around and you live selfishly when you're out in the world. Galatians 6 comes to mind. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Barking doesn't make you a dog, right? Sleeping in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. God knows our hearts, and at the end of the day, he's not fooled. If you're here this morning and you're a faker, the best thing you can do for yourself is to learn to be honest instead of playing the game. Why is the faker a hypocrite? Because they say they're part of the body, but they're really not. They're just here. The next on the list I called the Stoic. The Stoic speaks of their salvation with as much enthusiasm as going to the dentist. This person shows no joy for their salvation. They could be talking about Jesus and Scripture Or they could be talking about making a peanut butter sandwich and it would sound about the same. No jelly on the peanut butter either, just plain peanut butter. (laughs) Sometimes you don't really want to ask this person how they're doing. Kind of gets weird sometimes when that happens. Maybe they're just kind of negative. But it's because there's no joy in their life. They say they're a believer. There's no joy. After writing 11 chapters of Romans, Paul says this at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There's conviction there. There's passion there. In John 15, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Why is the Stoic a hypocrite? Because there is joy to be found in Christ. Amen? Amen. And if we're believers, we should have joy and others should be able to see it. 
The third on your list, I called the fighter. The fighter is a person who feels compelled to fight for, quote, the truth when opportunity presents itself. Compared to the Stoic, this person's on the opposite extreme. This person has too much fervor. They're usually ready to fight at the drop of a hat whenever their, quote, thing is brought up. What kind of things do fighters fight for? Maybe an idea, a belief, a political ideology, a particular group of people. You know, every time immigration comes up, you know so-and-so is going to say something about it because they just, that's their thing. That's what they like to fight about. As soon as their thing comes up, the fight is on. And even as believers, this can be the character that you become known for. Unfortunately, the fire often lacks grace and deference in how they speak to people. Let's do a little thought exercise. I'm going to make some statements. Let's see how you feel about them. I think it's possible to be a Christian and vote Democrat. I think it's possible to be a good parent and send your kid to public school. I think it's possible to have homosexual attractions and be a Jesus-loving Christian at the same time. I think it's possible to drink alcohol and not have to be seen as a lost cause. Or the opposite. I think it's possible to abstain from alcohol and not have to be seen as a cranky legalist. How about this one? I think it's possible to be a respectable person even if you put cream and sugar in your coffee. <laughs> I know. I, I, I struggled with that last one. I don't, I don't know if it is, but I trust that it is possible. Do your feathers get ruffled at all as you hear some of these statements? You might be a fighter. Proverbs 15 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. And Colossians 4 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Why is the fighter a hypocrite? Because the fighter sees issues and not people. In their quest to fight for their cause, they often neglect to recognize the humanity of the person that they're fighting with. And Jesus came to save people, not issues. He came to save sinners like us. The last one on your list there, the protector. The protector weighs their personal motivations more than Christ-like principles. This person is a believer who takes up a defensive position when their, quote, thing comes under attack. 
kind of things do people like to protect against or protect for themselves? Time, money, appearance, comfort, pride, right? Hey, go help so-and-so. They need help. Oh, I can't do that. It's going to cost me my time. It's going to cost me whatever else I was involved in right now. The protector is really good at knowing what is best for themselves and following through on that conviction. And unfortunately, the protector often misses opportunities to serve others because the opportunities would be inconvenient. Let's go through our little thought exercise again. Here's a thought. How about you move that person into your house that God has put on your heart in the recent past? Yeah, it'll be cramped. God knows you only have one restroom. But they've been on your heart for a reason. How about this? Invite that neighbor who keeps dumping his leaves on your side of the fence over for dinner and get to know him. Because he's human and he lives next door. Here's another. Reach out to that homosexual coworker and get to know their story. Here's a big one. Ask for a demotion at work. Demotion. Because you see that the extra time you're spending away from your family has been causing more harm than good. Hmm. That would be hard. Take that Starbucks money this month and buy someone a meal instead. We see people coming out. They're out on the streets. Use that money. Buy them a meal. Tell them about Jesus. Last one. Commit to babysit on Monday nights so that the single parent in your community group can have an evening to use as they please. Did your stomach turn a little bit at the thought of one of those ideas? You might be a protector. But Monday night is the bachelor. I know the pain. I know the pain. In Luke 18, we have the story of the rich young ruler. This man comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to follow you? And Jesus says this, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Is there something in your life that's too big of an ask for Jesus? Something you can't give up? Something you, you're going to protect at all costs? Matthew 6, Jesus says, speaking of the physical concerns of life, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom first. Why is the protector a hypocrite? Because the primary motivator for this person is whatever they think is best for their situation. Their typical response does not usually weigh how Christ might use them 
in any particular situation. The protector will not step out into an opportunity that will put their thing at risk, even if Jesus is asking them to do it. And so what I'm proposing this morning is that we as a church, the church at large, American church maybe more specifically, we've allowed ourselves to be characterized as stoics and fighters and protectors. One speaker that I, that I listened to said, we have become people who are known to be pro-this or pro-that. And what the Bible has called us to be is pro-people. We have forgotten that Christians are to be characterized by love. How do we get here? How did we arrive at this place? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Here we're going to be reading an excerpt where Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. If you look at a map, Ephesus is in what would be now western Turkey, near the water, across from Greece. It was a big city. It was kind of centrally located so that people that were traveling from the east to the west would have gone through Ephesus. It's estimated there were probably 250,000 people in the city around this time. To give you some sense of that size, northern Kentucky, between the three counties, is about 400,000 people. So maybe about half the size of northern Kentucky. And if you, in, in, in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, we see a picture of the, book, of the church at Ephesus as Paul is doing ministry there. And I have in your outline, it was a large city with many worldly attributes. This is an interesting place. It would have been culturally diverse because of all the travel. In Acts chapter 19, we see sorcery, demonic activity, magic, would have been a crazy place. And at the time that John is recording this revelation, Rome was ruling this, this area. And what Rome was doing, it was making people worship the leader, the Caesar, as a god. And if you didn't fall in line with that, you would have been persecuted. And so Christians were among the, were among the people. And there wasn't any systemic oppression of Christians as a group Yet, But if they didn't bow down, they would have been oppressed. And part of what John is doing is he's writing as a warning to these churches. There's seven churches. We're just looking at one. And he's saying, persecution is coming. If you're going to hold on to your beliefs, you're going to be persecuted for them. And so we get this letter to the churches. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, 
and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Because we have abandoned the love that we had at first. Let's understand this passage a little bit. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds. Who is him? That's Jesus. And so Jesus is speaking to this church. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If we go back to chapter 1, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Here, Jesus has them in his hand, in his right hand. And so he has control and power. That's what that right hand signifies. Jesus is holding them in his hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Chapter 1 says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that he walks among the churches signifies that he's there. He's present. He knows what they're doing. He sees their actions. He knows the ins and outs of what's going on. So he's powerful. He's in control. And he's present with them. He sees. Verse 2 continues. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know your works, he says. These were good works. Because of all the travel through the city, there would have been a lot of competing ideas and ideologies coming through the city. Some that would agree with their Christian beliefs, many that wouldn't. We see that, like I said, in Acts chapter 19. And they're working, they're laboring. What might that have looked like? 1 Corinthians 15 comes to mind. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. They were doing a good job of protecting the truth. Verse 3, he commends them again. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. That's hard to do. To not grow weary when you're working hard, that's difficult. And they've done that. They have not grown weary. So he's commending them. And then verse 4. But I have this against you. Wait, what? This was going so well. We've been working really hard defending your truth, Lord, protecting from these false teachers. I thought this was going really well. Verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What is this love that he's talking about? The word there is agape. When you hear Pastor Brad say, 
The definition of love is giving for the needs of another without expecting anything in return. That's this love. This giving, selfless, caring, intentional love. And the the text is not specific, right? He doesn't point to specific aspects of that love. We know it's not a love for the truth or preserving the truth because he already commended them for that. So what is that love? I think it's fair to say that that love is the joy and the excitement and the satisfaction and the contentment and all of those emotions that come when you first experience Christ's love. Think about that moment. Think back to that day, believer, when your eyes were opened to the truth of the gospel and you knew God set you free from your sin. The joy, the sentiment that was there but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And I think when you come to know that love initially, it kind of starts to show itself in a couple of specific ways. I have it there in your outline. The first is witnessing. Can you think back to that day? The joy that it brought to know you were loved by God? And the desire that you have to share that with the people who you care about, the people who you love. Matthew 5, Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, you are a light of the world. Remember here in Revelation that the churches are pictured as lampstands, right? So it's a lamp on top of a stand. Lamp gives light. You are the light of the world, A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When you receive the love of Christ, you can't help but share it. It's overwhelming. And I think that's one of the outflows of that first experience of love that they had walked away from. The second I have in your outline is loving one another. In John chapter 13, Jesus says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christians are defined, characterized by love. And an outflow is not just witnessing. An outflow of that initial love is not just witnessing. It's expressing that and sharing that love with others. One commentator I read said this, It seems like the desire for sound teaching and the actions taken to exclude all imposters had created a climate of suspicion in which love within the community was lacking. They became so enraptured in protecting the church, protecting the truth, protecting from the false teaching that they walked away, they abandoned their first love. They became known for being protectors and defenders and fighters instead of being known for their love. He goes on to say in verse 5, 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In this verse, that word remember, the way it's written in the Greek, it's written as a continuous action. Remember and keep remembering. As you do this, keep remembering. Keep remembering from where you came. But that word repent is a singular action. Repent once and then keep remembering. And Jesus is telling them, make a clean break with the way you're living right now. Stop, repent, and go back to where you came from by remembering that place. And so I ask you this morning, have you abandoned your first love? Have you traded it for something else that you're choosing to fight or defend instead? Has life so embittered you that maybe you can't even remember what that love was like in the beginning? Crawford Loritz says this about this passage. It's there in your outline. Don't you ever get so cute in ministry? Don't you ever get so sophisticated in ministry that you forget about the miracle of Calvary in your life? It is that gospel. It is the cross work of Christ. It is his deliverance in my soul that is my authority to minister to others. It is only because God has forgiven our sins that we have anything to share with anyone else. Everything we do as believers should be informed by the reality of the cross and the forgiveness of our sins that it brings. So if I'm correct in in what I'm suggesting, that we've gone away from our first love, that there are hypocrites, that we can be characterized as hypocrites, how do we return? How do we come back to that love? In Matthew 22, we have an account of some religious leaders And they're having this conversation with Jesus. And these religious leaders knew the law, the Old Testament law, and they wanted so much to not break the law that they made additional rules to keep them far away from breaking the law. Does that make sense? They wanted to preserve it. They wanted to acknowledge and and obey. So they made extra rules to make sure they don't get close to disobeying. And this interaction we have they ask Jesus a question. They say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And, he said to him, and Jesus says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments... Depend the law and the prophets. If we're making Christianity about more than what Jesus makes it about, we find ourselves in a similar position to these religious leaders. 
How do we return to our first love? How do we shake off all of those complications that we've added to Christian living? We just need to go back to the basics. Love God and love your neighbor. The first is there in your outline, love God. How do I grow in my love for God? We can begin by cultivating humility in our hearts. Since moving here to the Midwest, I've learned a phrase, a saying. It says, don't get too big for your britches. Right? Do we know what that means? You need to know your place, right? What is our place? Jesus is perfect. I'm not. I'm not in any position to think I'm better than anyone else. And before I turn my nose up to someone, I need to acknowledge my place before God. We're more similar to those people that we want to turn our nose to than we are different. We're sinners. But we have God's grace. As I think about the life of Jesus, what he modeled for us was servant leadership. Servant leadership. He didn't go around beating people over the head with a morality hammer. He didn't go around pointing things out just for the sake of doing that. He did that sometimes with the religious people. But look at him interacting with the woman at the well. Look at him interacting with uh, Nicodemus. Look at him interacting with people who were seeking Servant leadership is what he showed us. Matthew 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Be humble. (laughs) Approach others humbly. Recognize our place before the Lord and then approach others. Verse 21 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I think this is a really sobering verse for people who claim to be believers. You can grow up your whole life in church, think you're doing the right thing the whole time. These people prophesied and drove out demons and performed many miracles. And Jesus' response is, I never knew you away from me. Why is this sobering, in my opinion? Make sure that as you serve the Lord, you do it 
humbly. Make sure that the work you're doing comes from having your heart in the right place with God first. I have in your outline there, it says, God doesn't need us to defend him. He invites us to love on his behalf. He already gave us the blueprint. He already laid out the plan. How does that happen? He's shown us in scripture. Are we being obedient to that? Or are we doing our own thing? There in your outline, if we're not careful, we will love salvation more than we love the Savior. If we're not careful, we will love Christianity more than we love Christ. It's so easy to make this Christian life about the stuff that we do. And that first love is directly tied to the person who saved us, to Christ. And so how do we return to that love that we had at first? Begin by loving God more. Love God. Second, love our neighbor. As I look at that phrase, love is an action word. It's a verb. We need to be doing that. If you're not intentionally acting out of your love for the Lord, then you're not being obedient to Jesus' instruction here. It takes action. Look, it's easy enough to go to work and not talk to anybody and come home and avoid your neighbor and go inside and spend the night watching Netflix until you go to bed and do it all again tomorrow. That is not love. And that is not loving. Love will push you to action. It'll push you to act outside of your own self-interest. But we're not, we're not just called to love in abstract. We're called to love our neighbor, is what Jesus said. And the reality of loving your neighbor is that that gets really messy at times. And if you've made it the goal of your life, to avoid everything that's messy and difficult and challenging, you'll never love anyone, much less your neighbor. C.S. Lewis said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries, and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the coffin of your selfishness, but in that coffin, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become 
unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Are you willing to be vulnerable? If you avoid the mess on purpose, you're not loving your neighbor. You're loving yourself and your comfort because loving your neighbor is messy. Practically, what is your neighbor's name? Who is the person that lives across the street? Do you know that? If I was to ask that person, hey, tell me about Mark, what would they say? If I then go and ask somebody in your community group, hey, tell me about so-and-so, what would they say? Would it be the same thing? How about more than just like literally your neighbor, the person next door? Who is your neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Single people in our church. They're our neighbors. They're people we can love. Fellow believers. Widows. Orphans. Anyone. Pick someone. There's people everywhere. Who's sitting next to you? Literally look. Who's the next person in the row that's not part of your party? How many times does that happen? I see some people that are like, oh my gosh. Don't make me do that. <laughs> How many times does that happen that you sit next to that same person? Do you know their name? Do you know what they're going through? Where are the grandmas who are raising their grandkids amongst us? Do you know who they are? How about this? Here's an interesting thought, I think. If you were to leave, would anyone miss you? Would anyone be sad that you're gone? I think it's a, I think it's a thought we should entertain. We're called to love our neighbors. I would hope that you would be missed. In his book on marriage, Francis Chan says this. It's in your outline. The thing that we don't talk about in the church is that you can have a fun yet worthless marriage. There are a lot of happy couples that are absolutely worthless in the church. Oh, look, that couple gets along. Great. But do they accomplish anything for eternity? The goal is more than just getting along. And, and I, we could generalize this, right? The thing that we don't talk about in the church is that you can have a fun yet worthless life. There are a lot of people in the church who are happy and they're absolutely worthless in the church. Oh, look, that person's happy. Great. But do they accomplish anything for eternity? The goal is more than just getting to be happy. And so how do we return? By loving God and by loving our neighbor. That is a lofty, lofty calling. And it's difficult at times. But it's what Christ has called us to nonetheless. Love your neighbor. As we close, 
I'd just like to ask, have you allowed something other than Christ to define you? To characterize you? All the while still calling yourself a Christian? Following Christ should put us in, into the world in a way that is going to make us feel uncomfortable. I mean, if you follow Christ, you're going to look and talk and act differently than the world. That's part of it. And it's not that Christ has us doing outlandish, crazy things. It's that the spirit of the world is against the spirit of Christ. And something like loving your neighbor can be absolutely ridiculous to the world. Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Because we too easily abandon the love we had at first. We make Christianity seem like it's about other secondary things by how we live. And how do we correct course? How do we recover a sincere walk before the Lord? Keep the main things the main things. Pastor Peter said a couple weeks ago, fight the good fight. Not fight every fight. Fight the good fight. Love God. Love your neighbor. As I close, listen to this verse from 1 Timothy. Paul writes this. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ, in my arrogance, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and the love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Amen. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this morning as we think about hypocrisy in the church, may we know and remember that first love that comes when God brings us into faith in himself. And may we take that love to our neighbors in a way that brings glory to our Father in heaven. Amen.